Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dance Notes History. This is one of those very special episodes of the podcast where I talk to someone, a veteran, someone who has lived through and made history. Selma van der Peer was a young Dutch woman, a teenager, when war broke out in 1939. She never considered the possibility of her country being occupied by one of its neighbours. She grew up in a family of, of Jewish descent, but with um, secular, humanist leanings. And everything changed when Germany invaded Holland in 1940. She found herself a fugitive, running from home. Her family interned, eventually, to be murdered, she would find out. Uh, And she eventually found herself joining the Dutch resistance. It's a truly heroic story, which she told me when I sat down with her the other day. She's 97 years old now, incredibly bright, an enormous pleasure to sit down and listen to. She was, well, I won't spoil the story, but let's just say it's an incredible tale of heroics and survival under occupation and under the threat of genocide. I'm shooting a series of these interviews at the moment, of which this is one, with remarkable women, veterans of the Second World War, uh, resistance fighters in Europe, uh, women who served in uniform in the UK and beyond. Uh, This is just one of them. To to watch that documentary when it comes out, to watch our hundreds of other documentaries that we have, please go to History Hit TV. Uh, historyhit.tv use the code pod1 pod1 you'll get a month for free and your second month for just one pound euro or dollar your subscriptions go directly towards finding people like selma filming them recording them for posterity creating in-depth history programs where people like selma are given the space and time to tell their story Uh, and i'm very very proud of of the team uh, for this documentary we're producing at the moment so go and start to history in the meantime though have a listen to selma van der peer enjoy Selma, tell me about your your childhood in the Netherlands. Well, I was born as one of four children, the third one. I have two had two elder brothers, um, eleven and thirteen years older than me, so they're dead already, and. Um, a sister who was born six years after me. So, and my father and mother, um, my father was an artist and theatre man, and we had a tremendously nice family life, except that we were up and down financially always, 
depending on past work. But uh, I had a very happy childhood otherwise. Um, I often think when, you know, we didn't have many toys or any holidays abroad or anything like that in those days, but uh, we were very nice family. When I was born, the, the religion was already gone in our family. When did you first start to worry that the war, which had begun in the East, in Poland, when did you first start to worry it might affect your lives? When the war broke out in Holland on the 10th of May 1940, my brother Louis came home and he was already uh, with the Merchant Navy and the younger brother was with the army in the medical services. And um, he said, it's war, it's war. And, you know, well, I said, let me sleep. I was still the schoolgirl, and um, it didn't affect me. Well, it did, because we were very worried about my brothers, of course, when the war, when in the four days we were fighting, the Dutch were fighting, and we never knew about my brothers. We were very scared that they had been taken prisoner, like so many of the Dutch boys had, who were in the army or in the navy. But they were not. My younger brother David was stationed in Zeeland, Middelburg, and uh, they were told when the Dutch capitulated, they were told to go to Belgium, and when Belgium capitulated, they were go to, told to go to France, and from France they had to go to England. So that's how he got, got in England. And my elder brother was five days still with his ship lying in Amuiden, the port, but uh, then they went to England as well. But the funny thing was that day when he told us that morning of the 10th of May, and we he had to be back at six o'clock on his ship, and that was lying in the Eye, that's the port of Amsterdam actually. And my father decided, because there was no trams going or anything like that, um, decided to take him back to the ship. And I joined him, and an uncle came, and my sister came, and we joined him. We never thought, I often think of it now, we never thought of going on to the ship as well. Were you scared of what the occupation would bring? Well, not really very much, no, because we really didn't know. We knew what happened in Poland and in Eastern Europe a bit, but not very much. The Germans were very clever, you know. We didn't know very well, at least I didn't know very much of what happened. We had the German refugees, of course, coming into Holland, but they didn't tell. They, they said how bad it was financially and things like that. So one wasn't really that worried in the beginning, if I'm honest. We were worried, I was worried about my brothers and my parents as well. Because, as I say, we thought it may have fallen in German hands. The Germans, the regulations they brought out the, um, against the Jews and the Dutch um, actually was only starting later on in the year, at the end of '41, really. And uh, so up till then, once I was at school still, so you just went to school. In fact, I had to do an exam. Do you remember the moment when you suddenly felt that things were turning bad? The moment started when things started, first of all, was when Jews 
were not allowed to go in the swimming pool anymore or in the cinema or anything like that. That's the first thing. And then, of course, a bit later on, you had the yellow star, which you had to wear with dew on it. And that, of course, was very bad. I remember that that broke my heart, so you can say that. That was very, very bad. I kept my band back against my, or my school back against my shoulder all the time. So that was very bad. And then, of course, a very big thing, because all my friends were, well, nine out of ten were non-Jewish. They weren't allowed to come anymore in Jewish houses. And Jewish persons were not allowed to go into non-Jewish persons' houses anymore. And so all these things did it. Yeah. I can remember those times. Did wearing the badge, did, how did other Dutch people treat you? Did they start to, was it just a German thing or did the other Dutch people start to reject you as well? No, no. They had to officially, of course. No, several friends still can. I remember my father saying, Great will come, and she did during the whole war. And several of the other people did as well, yeah. But of course it was very dangerous for them because they would have been sent to concentration camp probably if they would have been found out. Yeah, there was of course a certain amount of people not coming, um, the danger of it, but your friends and so still started, still came. When did you decide you were going to act? You were going to do something about this? Oh, I didn't decide for a long time. I mean, I, did, I didn't know, you didn't. Don't forget we look back now from where we are. In, in this day and age. But we didn't know about most things, you know. Um, I'd never heard of for resistance movement. In 1942, though, people were called up, young men and, well, before that, young men were lifted from their beds and sent to Mauthausen and other concentration camps. And that was very bad, of course, as well. We were very worried then. The first time it affected me was when I got my collar card on the 7th of June 1942 to register to go to the main station to go to the east for a work camp. Work camps, they were, because I remember the first lot going about a few months before that with violins and guitars and, and singing, you know, because they thought they were going to work camp. And of course, they were all going to be murdered. So, the fact was that we didn't know. Perhaps few people might have known, but most people didn't know. The Germans were very, very clever. They didn't want the people to resist, you know. Well, anyhow, I got that call up, and my father said, oh no, you're not going ill. So he bought me some uh, chocolate, special uh, chocolate with stuff in it, chemical in it, and uh, so that I, my face had blood in it and so on. He called the doctor and I was a week free. I was given an Ausweis, a uh, piece of paper to tell me that I was free. But of course it was only for a week. Then I decided that perhaps if I, because you were free also, to free not to have to go to a work camp if you were in a position that you were needed. So a friend had, I knew she used to be a nurse 
And so I borrowed a nursing outfit from her. And I, was, I had to go and report uh, in the south of Amsterdam. And I did, and it was um, that day. And there was a big wooden table standing there outside with a woman behind it, a Jewish woman behind it, and behind her, next to her, a German SS officer. And uh, I thought, oh, I hope they're going to believe my story that I was a nurse. But it wasn't necessary because um, but there was a queue, a long, long queue, took hours to get to the table. And uh, But by the time I wanted to tell my story, she said, oh, no, no good, you can't change from an ill receipt to a social thing. Yeah. So that not tomorrow morning at nine o'clock at Central Station. So I was very disappointed. And I went, I was working then for Mr. and Mrs. De Jong, uh, and because by that time you could only work for Jewish firm. And this was a paper firm and they were very nice and we got on very well. And so I went back to them to tell them that I couldn't come anymore, that I had to go to a work camp. So I went there and they were standing near the fence in their garden talking to the man next door. And he was a German refugee. And it turns out, he said to me when he heard my story, because I was telling him that I couldn't come anymore. And he said, why don't you come and work for me? I've got a fur factory and you'll be free then. Because that was working for the Germans, the soldiers. And uh, so I was free then not to go to the central station and I started work at his factory the next morning. So you just didn't, you went to work at the fur factory and just, just never showed up for the train east? No, no, I don't think they checked it actually. It's unbelievable, yes, it's very illogical. I'm trying to tell you. Lots of things during the war are very illogical. But that, that man saved your life? Yeah, of course, yes, yeah, yes. And so you were working in the fur factory? Yeah, and then my father got his call up. By that time, we weren't allowed radios anymore, and I'm talking about the Jews, uh, uh, nor papers or anything. And um, you, so you were dependent on the Jewish Council, because that was the only paper, the Jewish Chronicle, that was published and sold. And they said that if the men went to work, wife and children would be free. And people started to believe it. Again, it's unbelievable, but people believed it. And um, so my father thought it was best to go to the work camp. So he went, he went to the station and they were taken to the work camp. And the same evening they were taken through to Westerbork, which was the concentration camp durch, uh, through which people went if they were sent to Auschwitz. So he was there, and that same evening there was this terrible collection of all Jewish people, or most of them, uh, by trucks and vans, by the Germans and the Dutch police. And uh, it was dreadful, that was terrible. And, you know, you, you, because we were living in a building in flat, six flats, and um, we could hear the noise and so. 
And I thought that we were going to be collected as well, but we weren't very lucky again. Did you say goodbye to your father? Yes, we said goodbye, of course, but we didn't think it was going to be goodbye forever. And so I said to my mother, they haven't come last night, the next morning, we haven't come, they haven't come last night, but they're going to come tomorrow for us. So I said, we must do something. And we had friends or far relations who I went to, that's another funny thing, really. in all their troubles, we went, I went to a dancing class, Jewish dancing class, of course, and uh, you, you just kept dancing. Unbelievable, but true. And um, I had met Clara there, Cardoso, and she had said to me, I can't come next week because we're going away. Well, that meant I knew they were going either to Switzerland, trying to get to Switzerland, or going into hiding. So I said to my mother, I'm going to find out where they went. So I went to Els, her sister-in-law, Clara's sister-in-law, because she hadn't gone into hiding. She was a very blonde, tall lady who didn't look Jewish at all. And she had a little three-year-old girl, also very blonde and very non-Jewish looking. And they stayed behind in the flat. And the rest of the family went into hiding. So I went to Els and I asked her if she got an address for me to wear. So she gave me the address of a man and he turned out to be our insurance broker when I went there. She said that if a woman would come tomorrow for my mother and sister, there were only room for two uh, in Eindhoven, a family in, woman in Eindhoven, and my mother and sister were taken there the next day. And they were Christian Dutch people? Yeah. I had been the last few years to an evening class to learn to type and shorthand. Well, I was still at school. And I met a girl there and she became very friendly. And she said if I ever was in trouble, she, I could come to her family. So that's where I went. And I stayed with them for a week until the mother said uh, it was too dangerous and I had to leave. Also, she said they were out of food, so I said, well, and coal and so, so my father had stocked up quite a bit and I said we had that, so she went to fetch it. Anyhow, after a week I was on, in the street, so I had an uncle who was married to a non-Jewish person as well, Tante Tini. He, wa he wasn't with his first wife, that was the sister of my mother, but this was his second wife. And uh, so I went to him and I stayed with them while working in the fur factory. And then one day I was sending my, my father and he had sent a letter out asking for chocolate, bonbons, boxes of bonbons. Now I knew he never had sweets at all. So I was told later on by somebody else who I met later on, um, again, a sister-in-law of a cousin, um, who worked for the Jewish Council in Westerbork, in that concentration camp, but was allowed out every weekend home until they were arrested themselves. She told me that my father was in hospital in that camp, 
and that he gave the chocolate to the nurses, no doubt to try to get them to have him longer in the hospital, because they were sent every, there were trains going from there every Tuesday to Auschwitz, which was an, uh, an uh, extermination camp. So that was what happened, and I, I sent, and one day when I did that, I went back to work, or was going to back to work, and I was on the corner of the street, and I had a very funny feeling in my tummy, and I just didn't go any further, I went back home. And that day, all the fur factories were collected by the SS, the Germans, and sent to the concentration camp. So I missed it and felt very, very good that I missed it. I had a cousin who had two little children then and I went there to help him because his wife was in hospital waiting her third child and also having uh, tuberculosis, TB. And so she had to stay in the hospital. And I went to look after these two children to cook for them and so on. And then one day, Dientje, she said to me to go and visit Vicky, and I was having the baby that day, and to take the baby away and give it to her. She would be in the other room. And instead of the baby being taken back, the nurse was involved as well. Instead of taking the baby back to the baby room, you know, where all the babies were, Dientje took it and uh, brought it to non-Jewish people and he was in South Holland, and he was brought up by these people until the war was over. And the two other children were taken, and again they were. And I was doing that actually. I was talking to Ricky and taking the baby and took took him him to Dietje, you know, who was in another room. How old were you at this point? Well, I was 17 when the war broke out. But you're beginning to become a bit of a resistance person now. Well, yes, I didn't realise, you see. This is the funny thing of it. I had no idea that there was, that they were working for, that there was a resistance movement. No idea at all. Just was helping the, the, about the child. No idea at all. In the beginning, there was hardly any resistance movement that grew up slowly but surely. In the beginning, there wasn't. People helped each other, but there wasn't a real movement yet. And what about you? When did you when did you start to do more with the resistance? Well, once so, my uncle, uh, Uncle Jack, my, where I was staying there for, and Tante Tini was a very nervous person, and um, she became very very nervous because every time the blackout man came to see that the blackout was okay. And, they came upstairs and I was jumping out of the window so that she, he wouldn't see me. And um, because I was illegal there really. And if my uncle would have been caught, he would have been sent to concentration camp too and so would she. So I jumped out of the window on the roof every time this man came whether it was raining or windy or anything. It was, that was terrible, dreadful, dreadful, really. Unbelievable. Once he came in the room, it was my cousin's room, really, who had already gone to, to a camp, a so-called working camp. 
and I was in his room. My my uncle gave me his room to use. And when the blackout men came into that room, switched that light on, I had already jumped onto the roof and had to jump onto the next roof, really, because otherwise he might have seen me when he opened the, the window. So that was a terrible time, yes. Anyhow, then my uncle said, Tantatini is getting very, very nervous. I'm so scared that she's by accident gift away, you know, that you're here. Which often happened, of course, it was very difficult for many people. And she was hyper nervous. So I think it's better if you look, if you can find another house. So there we are. I went to two or three more and something happened. And then I was with a young couple and they had just two newborn babies and they lived in a tiny flat. People wanted to have the money, of course, as well. You paid your money, of course, for staying with family in hiding. So um, by now you hadn't got the Jewish star. You were just pretending to be someone different. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that was the first time, actually. But I didn't have any um, papers yet. But I had taken my uh, star off, of course, that I had to do. So I was with this couple. I stayed a few weeks with them, actually. And then one day, I was out because I had to go out to, to give them some privacy as well, you see. I met a friend of my cousin and he said, oh, you mustn't go back to your because the man who gave you that address has um, given a list of all people he found places for to the SS. So he got a bed and his bed was that way and my bed was there. But then one night, he crept into my bed, I felt him, but I hadn't realized I was such a child that he'd fallen in love with me. So I just did as if I slept and I pushed him away and he went out. And But then a few nights after that, it happened again and I woke up and uh, pushed him out and said that I didn't want that type of thing. And uh, when he went a bit further, you see, and so the next morning I went to Dintje and told her about it. And she got Wim's, Dr. Wim Storm from the Leiden Hospital, who took me to Leiden, to the flat in Leiden, with Antje Holthuis, who was a doctor also in the same department as Wim. And um, that's where I met the resistance movement. Wim already did an awful lot for the resistance. It was afterwards that I realized that it existed. I was in Leiden up to Singel with Antje and Mien. Mien was a uh, laboratory person and Antje was a doctor. In the evening, when we were at dinner, some of the doctors from Leiden Hospital came to have dinner with us, eat with us, and they just told some stories and so on. And in the beginning, I had no, no clue that they were uh, in the resistance. Anyhow, after a while, they talked about it when I was there, when I had been there for a few weeks. And um, so I heard the stories. They were taking Jewish people to Christian homes in, in, um, in other towns, you see. Very, very good 
and I met several other people as well uh, from the resistance movement therefore. Most of them there were doctors who were working in the hospital at the same time and um, it was a well-known, later on it was well-known, the doctors' resistance group there in Leiden. And did you help them? Well, one night, one day, they, they were tol telling a story about uh, Shushi, who um, he jumped out of the window rather than giving names of the people he worked with. And I thought that was so wonderful, idealistic, you know. And then they also said how short they were, because by that time, the Dutch boys and men were asked to, if they came from school and they wanted to go to university, they had to sign a loyalty brief. If they didn't, they were sent to Germany to work. But if they didn't want to do that, they had to go into hiding. It's many and many men were called up to go straight to Germany to work, and they didn't want to do that. So by the time I'm just talking about, there were already many, many, many Dutch non-Jewish boys and men who had to be taken into hiding. And my resistance uh, colleagues said therefore um, they needed more people because because that happened, there were no, not many boys they could use because the boys should either go to Germany or be students. And so they needed girls, really. So I said, can I help? And that's how it happened. And in the beginning, oh, they were delighted, yes. And then somebody, Bob told me, took me apart later on and said, it's very dangerous for you, you realize that, and so you shouldn't really do it. But I wanted to do it because I had heard so much of the other people who did so many things. I wanted to help. Were you scared? No. But slightly with some of the missions I did, I was a bit scared. But no, it was no good being scared, no. Um, so in the beginning all I did was filling in envelopes with illegal papers because the newspapers were not allowed anymore, but the legal papers were printed still. And um, the women I were working for the, for the funk, and that was the paper I put in envelopes and then sent to people. And um, then they asked me my first mission. <laughs> um, I had to go to Holland, to uh, Amsterdam, was giving me a suitcase there, which she had fetched from the printer. You had to be very careful, so I was not allowed to know the printer. And she put it in the rack, in the luggage rack, and I was sitting opposite it. And I had to take that to five different towns in the south of Holland. There were five parcels in, she told me. But it was already getting quite late, and you had by then everybody had to be in before eight o'clock. There was a curfew. So by the time I got to Leiden, it was already quite getting quite late. And so I got out and wanted to go home. And then I saw at the exit not only the conductor or the men at the exit, but also 
policemen in SSs, German SSs. So I couldn't do anything else but go through it, you see. So I went there and they said, what's in the suitcase? I said, papers. You, I had to open it. So I, I didn't know the locks, you see, because I didn't know the suitcase at all. So I was fiddling with those locks a long, long time. And I thought, now I've, I've been there. The, the, that's me, you know, I've gone. And I opened the locks in the end, opened the uh, suitcase as well, the lid, and there were the five parcels. And lo and behold, he said, all right, go. Didn't say open up and what's in the parcels, it's just paper. So I went and I was trembling. Then I was scared actually after that, yes. And me gave me a stiff drink. <laughs> said, what's the matter? And I told him. But the next morning I went with the suitcase to the south and uh, delivered the papers. Hi, I'm Matt Lewis, historian and host of a new chapter of the Echoes of History podcast. If you're an Assassin's Creed fan, and like me, want to be prepared for the launch of Assassin's Creed Shadows later this year, join us on Echoes of History as we head to feudal Japan to explore the real-life history that inspired the latest game from this legendary franchise. Learn about Yasuke, the African warrior who entered the trusted circle of Japan's most powerful warlord. Hear accounts of cultures colliding when Portuguese missionaries landed on Japanese shores and follow Japan's journey through years of division and bitter warfare to unification at the dawn of the modern era. Make sure you catch every episode by following Echoes of History, a Ubisoft podcast brought to you by History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. And what other kind of missions do you have to do? And I went, another time I went with a suitcase... And she put it in the luggage again for me. But this time it was early and I didn't go out. And by that time I went to The Hague, we came to The Hague. Um, I had to go to the loo. So I went to the loo and when I came back, I thought I was in the wrong wagon because my suitcase wasn't there anymore. And the, but the woman opposite, who had been sitting opposite me and chatted to me, she was there, so I thought, no, I'm in the right carriage, you know. So she said to me, if you lost something, you suitcase. And I said, no, 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 no. 
couldn't say yes. I said no. But she opened the window when we stopped in Rotterdam. She opened the window and she yelled out, the girl has lost her suitcase. I could have killed her. Then um, an SS soldier came, German, and said, Raus, out. So I went out, I had to go out. And he said, what is in the suitcase? And I said, clothes, underwear. And he started asking me a few more questions about what is the suitcase and what, where did I put it and so. And I told him in the, in the luggage rack. And then he was called away, thank goodness. And um, wait here, he said, but I saw the train moving and I jumped on the moving train and off we went. I come in Dordrecht where we had to change for the, if you wanted to go to the east side of Holland, to Limburg. And I had to go out. By the time I was at the exit, the conductor came and he said, are you the girl who lost her suitcase? And I said, yes. He said, oh, I think I found it. What was in it? I said, underwear. And he came with a small suitcase, not mine at all, and opened it up and thank God there was an underwear in it. And he said, is this it? I said, yes. And off I went with somebody else's suitcase. Later on, we heard that the suitcase was my suitcase, was found in the water. And Anne, I, I sent a telegram actually to Anne, telling her something was wrong. And she came the next day. I went home and she came the next day. And um, she laughed. She said, well, the one who opened the suitcase must have got the shock of his life. He saw her life. They thought they stole a suitcase with clothes, you see. And they got the paper, the illegal papers. That's why they threw it in the water. One day I went to Seti and I was waiting for the bus just around the corner where I lived. And it started to rain. And uh, a German officer came with a big umbrella and held it above me and uh, said, can I help you? And I said, no, thank you. And uh, and then the bus came, luckily, and he, he held it above me all the way in the bus. And um, in a few, time, few days after, or a few weeks after that, I uh, was there again and he came again. And uh, he said, I just live over the road here. Would you like to come and have a cup of tea? It's terrible weather. And I said, no, no, thank you, I have no time. And I told Bob about that, who was really my boss. He said, oh, that is very good. You must try and get some papers of him. And I said, why? He said, well, we've got some boys in jail and they have to be got out and we need German papers with official German stamps and so. And um, so I said, oh, no, much too dangerous. I didn't want to do it. But then he talked me into it. He said, well, you, if you want to help the boys and so. So the next time it happened, <laughs> which it did, we had tea. So he went to the kitchen and I saw my opportunity. I went into his jacket, got out a paper and saw that there was one with a stamp and so on, German paper, and uh, put it in my handbag and when he came back we had a drink and we chatted and I hope he didn't realize I was nervous 
because I was. And I went home and gave my paper, the papers to Bob. So that was rather a trick. And I tried not to go in the neighborhood anymore. I'll bet. For, for month, a month, a month. Your luck seems to be unending, but it did eventually run out. Yes, the luck ran out, not for me so much to stay away, but for Bob. He was arrested in the train. They'd been looking out for him already for a while. And um, he was arrested in the train and he came to his room between two Grüne Polizei, two German police. I tried to run upstairs. This was on the first floor and I tried to run upstairs. And, uh, but they got me back. And uh, we were interrogated there, all three, and then we were um, separately taken by car to the prison. They went through Bob's cupboard and behind his clothes they found a pistol. It was then that I got scared because he had always said not to use a pistol, not to have one. And then he had one. I was really furious in a way and very scared. Anyhow, the boys said that I was just a girlfriend. And those two Grüne police, I believed it. And I said so as well, of course, because huh? the girlfriend I don't know anything about it. And But I was taken to the prison, to the women's prison in uh, Utrecht. And there was an old prison guard, old woman. And she said to me, have you got a diary? And I said, yes. She said, tear it up and put it in the toilet. I said, there's nothing in it. Oh, they'll always find something, she said. She was on, you know, against them as a prison guard, because that was her job, actually. Um, she and her brother helped a prisoner to escape, and they got caught as well. She was sent to Ravensburg, too. But the next day, I was taken by those two uh, Grüne Polizei, to Amsterdam, to the Terpestraat. Now, the Terpestraat was the headquarters of the Gestapo, where people were taken and tortured. So we arrived at the Terpestraat, and they opened the car door, and I was out, and uh, there was a man standing on the top of the, the huge staircase to go into the school. Men standing on the top of there said, what is this? What is that? And my policeman said, oh, the girl has nothing to do with it. And so I thought, oh, fine, that's good. <laughs> but then he said, Lagos, glaub ich nicht, I don't believe it. And my heart sank in my shoes. And um, he was the head of the Gestapo, I later on heard. But then after a while, they came back and gave me my backpack. So, and he didn't say anything, so it was all right. So I was lucky again. And they took me to the big prison in Amsterdam, Amsterdamseweg. And I was put in a cell there with five others. Cell for one. And so what, how did you get out of that prison cell? Well, I was taken every day for interrogation. And um, they, of course, said, um, they asked my parents, and I said, uh, I had prepared that, of course. 
I said um, they were killed in a train crash in England and my brothers were in England too didn't tell them in the army or the navy and they believed it and then one day when I had an interview again he said you better tell us really the truth because Hitler does not the Führer does not kill women we knew better of course but that's what he said never forget it that's what he said yes so I said I've been telling you the truth and then I was uh, I was called um, for Kriegsdauer. I got Kriegsdauer, which is imprisonment for Kriegsdauer, the duration of the war. And I was sent, then we were one morning, I was called out of the cell, and uh, there was a long queue of women and men. And we went by tram to the station, and then to the Dutch concentration camp in the south of Holland, near the Belgian border called Fucht. And um, I was in prison there, well, in the camp, and I met several people from the resistance, of course, who were there already. We were put in a bath there, and were given, the clothes were all taken, everything was taken. We were given blue overalls, complete overalls, with only the back you could open a bit to go to the loo. And we were given uh, clocks to wear and a blue headscarf, which we had to bind underneath, I think, but we didn't. That was the Dutch concentration camp for non-Jews, because by that time they hadn't found out I was Jewish, of course. The next day I was put to work. I was given a uh, brush and a bucket with soap and water and I was told to clean the nursery floor. There was a nursery school. And you never believe it. I didn't believe it either. There was, um, on the wall, there was two men, prisoners, were painting nursery rhymes on the wall. Where were you sent after that? And then the next day I was sent to Setogenbosch, to a gas mask factory. I was put on a conveyor belt to do small things on the gas mask. And the girl opposite me said, um, don't screw it too, too fast, very loose, because we don't want it to be right. And they were doing sabotage, actually. And I was doing it then as well. And um, in the, at the end of the belt, um, it was all going in a big wooden case to be sent to Germany. But we were only allowed to go to the loo at 12 o'clock. The work was from 6 to 6, 12 hours. One week day shift, one week night shift. And when were you sent to Germany? One day we heard the planes going over and so, and we were told that the Allies were near the border of Belgium and Holland. And we thought, oh, fine, we're going to be freed, we're going to be freed. But no, the Germans one day, they sent us back to the Fürth camp, the main camp, and on the 4th of September, 1944. And on the 6th of September, we were put in the trains to Germany. But I tried to hide under a mattress. 
but not quick enough. My legs were still sticking out. And when the officer in, the guard came, the woman guard came, she pulled me back in and pushed me in the last wagon. And that was my luck again, because there were only a few women in there. Well, the others were 70 or 80 in a wagon, in a train. It took us three days and two nights to go to Germany, to um, Ravensbrück, turned out to be. And then we arrived in Ravensbrück, and that was terrible, terrible, terrible. The doors, the sliding doors were open. They were all cattle wagons, of course, we were put in. And um, the sliding doors were opened, and outside were SS men with dogs and SS women with whips. And so out, out, they said, out, quick, quick, quick. So we had to, and we walked to the camp uh, under shouting all the time. We weren't used to that at all in the Dutch concentration camp, you know. There were hardly any German. So when we came into the camp, we went through the gate and we went into a big tent. We slept, we were dying to sleep really, most of them were. I had quite slept actually, we were quite lucky because we were only eight in that, or twelve in that uh, wagon, so we had room to sleep, but the others weren't, hadn't. And um, so we slept in a tent until the next day, and then we were sent to the bathhouse, the bath barrack, and we were all queuing up. You had to queue all the time in Germany, in the camp, five in a row. And um, when the first ones came out, they told us, out from the uh, shower, the shower was, um, when they came out, they told us that they had to give everything, everything was taken away. There was a group of us who were Philips workers in Eindhoven, had worked for Philips. And they were sent straight to Siemens factory, which was the, the concentration camp was in the valley, and the Siemens factory was up the hill. And they were working there straight away. And so one of them said to me, why don't you join us? I said, I have never worked for Philips. I don't know how to do it. Oh, well, it doesn't matter. They'll tell you how to do it. I said, but they'll ask for my number, or, because we were given num numbers by then, you know on a piece of cloth. I was scared. But the next morning at half past five, I joined them. And that's how I got, she was quite right. All they did was counting the rows, not the people at all. And um, so I went into the factory and they put me down. There were, uh, well, the factory, they were big barracks and um, huts, really, huts. And um, I was set on a stool and I had to soldier very fine wire, like you have for uh, aeroplanes, you know, things, or in cars even. And I couldn't, I was so nervous. And, uh, um, I was still in the main camp and I was on the toilet. By that time I had terrible tummy trouble always. My intestines have suffered tremendously. And um, I couldn't get up from the loo when the roll call was on, appell. And so a German soldier came, and with his belt, he started hitting me. 
and two of the others caught me up so that they could count because otherwise they were without. And they took me to the Revere, to the hospital, because I had collapsed completely unconscious. And um, I was there for a few days and then somebody came and said to me, are you Marcha? I said, yeah. I said yes. So she said, well, uh, Siemens is building, has built a new hut, a new barrack, and Herr Seefeld, the chef, wants you to be his secretary, Miss Rebrin. So then I quickly got myself demobbed from the hospital <laughs> and um, got back to there and I became his secretary. And you, you were in that condition till the end of the war? Yeah. Every day the um, cart with all the dead bodies passed by from the hospital to, to the crematorium, you know, and you saw that and all these legs and arms hanging over it and so terrible. And you heard, of course, well, things. You didn't see it because you weren't there, but um, you heard stories from people who had been in the bunker and had been beaten to death. They tied them up and they, they had to count, uh, say that they get 25 beatings and they had to count and then they lost count because they were unconscious and they had to start all over again until they were dead. But I've never been present at one. No, thank God not. When the war finished, how much of your family had survived the war? Only I. Well, my two brothers, of course, they were in England. Well, one of them was sailing. But your father? But my father, mother and sister were killed, yeah. It took six, I was already in England six months after the war before I heard about my father. I still had a hope that he may be in Russia or something, you know. The Russians liberated the camps in the East, you know. So I had a slight hope that he might have. So for you, did the end of the war bring ha happiness? No, 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 no. I had a very bad time after the war, even here in England. But first of all in Holland. When we were taken to Sweden, which we were, the Dutch and Belgian women, uh, on the 23rd of April 1945, before Ravensbrück was liberated, and we were exchanged by Count Bernadotte. While I was in Sweden, when the Dutch were liberated, and the Holland was liberated, the consul and the Ambassador came to the camp where we were. We were interned in a small camp. Thea and I were asked to come to Stockholm on the, then, so to help, would we be willing to help when other, other people came out of the camps? Because there are thousands of concentration camps. Nobody knew there were so many, you see, but there were. And, um, and masses of people came and we helped. My job was, first of all, my job was to find out sick people, people who were in hospital or with families and were not well, and then see what they needed and make a list and then get that uh, signed, you know. So you heard all the stories? Yeah. And then um, 
when that was over, when people became a bit better, um, I was told when when the plane started going back to Holland, that was only in July, end of June, July. We arrived there in April, because up till then there were no planes. And I was asked to make the list of people who wanted to go back. And um, when I arrived in Holland at the Central Station, everybody, or almost everybody, was collected by family. And there was I, standing alone. And I was taken by cart and horse to my friend Greet. I had been writing to Greet Brinkhuis, the one who was my friend all during the war. They very, very, very friendly, very kindly uh, took me in. But I felt so bad because I suddenly, I was alone, even with these nice people. I had no family, I had no home, and there I was in Amsterdam, suddenly, and also without, without my friends. And that was 75 years ago. Yeah. You've lived seven and a half decades since then. Yeah. Have you been able to rediscover joy and happiness yes, and love? Yes, I did, yes. How, I did. how have you moved beyond the trauma you saw and you suffered? Well, it was the first five years here in England as well. Very lonely. My brothers were there, but turned out I was one, looking forward for a family life. My mistake, perhaps, but I was, but I didn't. They had built their own lives. And I was a little sister. They thought they should need to look after, but of course I wasn't. I was grown up, very much so. And uh, so with my my younger brother, David, with his, his fiancée and later his wife, couldn't get on at all. And um, my elder brother went to Canada. I get on with my, my nieces, his daughters. But um, that's not life. So first five years, very difficult, especially, although they gave me a very good job, the Minister of Defence, you know. But again, they were very good to me and I didn't have much to do. Well, I was used to work and use my brains all the time. And suddenly I had nothing. And I lived in a room on my own, you know. I became friendly with people and friends, all right. Then I kept on telling myself, don't cry all the time. There are people, you're very lucky to be in London. There are people who would like to stand in your shoes. And... Um, I then got a job with the BBC, that section, and I started studying. First of all, my English, <laughs> and then I started studying sociology and anthropology, and I met my husband. And that was the beginning of healing? That was the beginning of the healing, yeah. yeah. But I must say that I still have uh, days that, you know, I feel depressed. But I tell myself, it's no good thinking of it, you can't change it. I mustn't read anything about it in the evenings, because otherwise I can't sleep. And if by accident something goes on television about camps or something, I mustn't do that, because I can't sleep.
Hi everyone, it's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick request. It's so annoying and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it and I hate myself. Please, please go onto iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps, basically boosts up the chart, which is good. And then more people listen, which is nice. So if you could do that, I'd be very grateful. I understand if you don't subscribe to my TV channel. I understand if you don't buy my calendar, but this is free. Come on, do me a favor. Thanks. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just one pound a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.